You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Kristen Wood, who worked for the CIA for more than two decades, doing a little bit of everything. She is now a relatively newish member of the International Spy Museum's advisory board and has been a great asset for us as we've continued our move to the new location. And we're happy to have her here talking to us on SpyCast. So welcome, Kristen, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Vince. It's a great pleasure. So I, whenever I have a former practitioner, especially somebody who, who spent a career at CIA and, and someone who basically first real job out of college, I mean, you, you, you graduated from college and very soon thereafter in the long run, you went to CIA. Was this always the plan? Was this something that, you know, you at 10 years old, you grew up, said, I want to work for CIA? Or was this something that you fell into during school? Or, you know, what, what is the origin story of Kristen Wood? <laughs> well, so the, the strange answer is yes. So, uh, although not CIA. So when I was in high school, I grew up in a very small rural farming community in uh, Central California. And we had a lot of cows and a lot of citrus. And we were as far away from international relations as you could possibly be. But I grew up and said all throughout high school I wanted to work for the federal government. And it, it caused all sorts of raised eyebrows because I guess as an adult, that didn't actually, adults didn't hear that quite um, in the way that it sounded to me. Well, it's not like growing up in Arlington, right? No. You know, where it's no, just, they're like, what, what yeah. federal government? <laughs> um, so I went to college in Los Angeles at Occidental College and... Uh, continued to study international relations, political science, and my professor, uh, Larry Caldwell, happened to have been a former CIA analyst. And so as we're having our conversations in junior and senior year about what's next, he suggested CIA, and it just seemed like the perfect answer. So I got an interview as a result of his um, presenting my, my background and kind of the rest is history. Once you started thinking CIA, was there anything that specific that you did to kind of prepare yourself for your future job, or, or had you been doing that already 
in the classes that you were taking or did you just not know what to do going in and just saying, all right, well, let's see what happens. So I think inadvertently I had been preparing. I'd studied Russian for three years in college. I'd taken all sorts of diplomacy and world affairs courses, the political science courses, although I still haven't figured out how Hobbes, Locke, and Thoreau really <laughs> help out in that, but I'm sure one day I will. Um, so I had the substantive, at least, overview. And I think when I was talking to the recruiters for the agency, that background was really useful. It, there just wasn't, because there really wasn't even the internet at the time, mm -hmm. it was um, much harder for people, I think, to have the, the deep substantive background unless you'd studied it in college. So I think that really helped. Um, in preparing for the interview, though, they said just be yourself, be yourself, and I actually kind of took that literally, and I guess it worked out okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, knowing that life is nasty, brutish, and short, as Thomas Hobbes <laughs> would say, is is a key component, perhaps, for working for CIA. Um, now you talked about the idea, this is pre-internet. Now in the world of the internet, in the world of the fact that I remember a statistic may have been made up, you know, 75% of statistics are made up on the spot, but... A statistic huh, after that that one? right after nine eleven for every thousand there's one job for every thousand applicants the CIA um, and it's all internet based and it's very easy just to go on CIA.gov I'm not telling you to do so audience but the idea is that it, it's perhaps because of how how prestigious the job is and and it's much more difficult today so you you retired real, really recently I mean we're only talking about I guess two years ish or so mm -hmm. ago. So what advice would you give to those who are you know, where you were back at Occidental College thinking about a career at CIA? You know, study of Russian is always important. Although, you know, when I was studying it in the 90s, everyone was like, why aren't you, why aren't you doing Arabic? I'm like, Russian's coming back, baby. Um, <laughs> what, what, what is the broader advice that you can give for those thinking about a career in CIA? So I think it comes down to where, and probably the same advice for really looking at a career anywhere, is what are you passionate about? If you're really passionate about service, which is what CIA is, it's service of the nation and national security, then it's becoming as expert as you can be in the subjects that you're passionate about. So it doesn't, while there are a lot more people hired to go after major known terrorism and lots of events in the Middle East and Russia and China, there is such need for worldwide knowledge and background. And so if it's politics in South Africa or if it's the economy in Europe or if, depending on what it is you care about, study that, know that, learn that. And that passion and the deep substantive knowledge that you would bring to your interview conveys in a way that I just had no idea at the time. And that matters because in the end of the day, you have to have your conviction that this is really important and it matters. And you have to have demonstrated uh, that you are committed to this profession by studying, by learning, by getting good grades so that it shows that not only are you familiar with the material, but that you've mastered it. So in some ways, it's, it's almost straightforward because do what you do, absolutely dig into it, dive into mm -hmm. it. I think there are something like 2,000 different types of jobs at the agency. There's a little bit more than that, but I don't have the exact number. And so even if you're a personal trainer, yeah. 
even if you love dogs or you're a fireman, I mean, there's so many non-traditional positions. If you're really interested in serving at CIA, there are many, many ways to do it. CIA.gov does give you an opportunity to see what is out there and the kinds of qualifications are needed. Mm -hmm. In many cases, a master's degree is necessary for some positions. In others, it's not. Mm -hmm. So it's really getting very serious about if it's CIA that someone wants to work for, if, if that's what the the priority is, then make sure that you're moving against the qualifications for the kinds of jobs you want. I, I get asked this question, too, when we talk to students and stuff here at the museum, and, and I think there's an interesting analogy. I, I always love watching presidential debates, or I used to, um, and the question was, like, who's most prepared to be president? And we'll talk a little bit about your direct re interactions with people at that level. Um, but the joke is, even if you've been vice president, no one knows what it's like to be president. No one understands that responsibility. No one understands the day-to-day -day that's required. And, and I think going into CIA, whether it's an analyst or operation or anything else, the on-the-job training or the on-site education that you get, whether it's through formalized education like Kent School or just you know getting in with somebody who's been there for a while in mentorship, is the only real way to be prepared. Is that... Am I, am I being wrong and saying, I mean, and really it comes down to be as well-rounded as you possibly can because I don't care what you studied at undergrad at university of whatever in Russian studies until you're seeing classified documents and like human intelligence from a day or two ago. You're not understanding the way the world works. I, I think you have a really good point. I think the other piece is I care a whole lot about how someone thinks. What is the, how does their thought process work? Almost more than their substantive background. You have to have that to, to, it's the price of admission. You have to have some substantive background. But a lot of the initial testing, a lot of the initial conversations come around. How, how does someone think? Can they, they have the capacity to think outside the box? How, do the, how does their mind work? And that is probably a vital part of it, making links. I'm um, not making the wrong links. Yeah. Uh, that actually ends really badly sometimes, as, as you may <laughs> remember. So um, I think that's a really important thing. The on-the-job training and mentoring is vital because it's it's just like anything. You're prepared to do something until you actually do it. It's very it, – it, and it's always going to be very different. I think the thing I didn't know before I started was I wasn't as familiar with the generation before me and uh, whose shoulders, on whose shoulders we stood. Mm. And to hear just the incredible patriotism and commitment and sacrifice of the people who came before us and then served with us you know, over these two decades, I think signing up for a career at the agency is really so much about you're, you're picking up something that's very heavy. You're picking up partial responsibility for the national security of the United States of America. And there are many other professionals there with you holding up this very, very heavy responsibility. But understand that it's there. And I think you people may not understand that. Day. People may not understand that as much. I mean, anyone who's been in the military, it's drilled into your head, right? If you're a Marine, you talk about the history of the Corps. In Army, we were talking about everything from Valley Forge to... You know, learning the army, so everything. There's so much tradition involved with the military, but the, the intelligence. I mean, CIA especially, kind of also plays upon that tradition of those who came before you. 
Um, you know, you see that at headquarters with the paintings on the walls and kind of the museum itself mm -hmm. at CIA is really trying to get that point across that it's not like every new group that comes into CIA is reinventing the wheel. No, you're absolutely right. That is how it works. And I think it's such a honor as an American citizen. I mean, I, and I really feel this deep, deep, deeply in my heart is it's such an honor to have the privilege to serve. And I worked with thousands of people who felt the same way. And so while there's this enormous responsibility, there's just this sense of awe and gratitude that we get to be a part of this, that we get to help our nation move forward. And when terrible things happen, that you can be there to contribute to our country moving forward from that. So um, it is not a job. It's a calling. It's a passion. Uh, it's a mission. And it's easy to be cynical about saying stuff like that, but you know, you point to the military and they say stuff like that, and everyone kind of goes, "Yes, of course." You know, it's, you know, it's the honor and courage and self-sacrifice and everything else, and it's not always extended to those not wearing uniforms. You know, working for national security in other ways. Again, I'm not trying to rah rah CIA, you know, but there there are those who have been deployed as much or even more in some cases than the U.S. military in the last 15 years. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you a really broad question, and this is kind of—you can answer this any way that you want to. But it's interesting to me whenever I have somebody who was with CIA during, in my lifetime, the three major transition periods that have taken place with, with American intelligence broadly, and that's the end of the Cold War, of course, 9/11, you know, perhaps even more so. But then in some of the more bureaucratic reorganizations that took place a couple years after 9/11. So. Let me ask you broadly. You can choose whatever you want to. You know how how what has dramatically changed over this time period? What's remained somewhat the same? What you know from if you could talk to the twenty whatever year old Kristen who just joined CIA out of college, what would you say? Like you won't believe what it looks like now. Absolutely. Wow, that is a broad question. <laughs> so I think so many things have changed, um, and and I'll tick through them in the order they come off the top mm -hmm. of my head. The first is the role of women. And when I joined, uh, it was not, there were not that many women in the part of the workforce I was in. I worked at the National Photographic Interpretation Center, so as an imagery analyst. And in my year, 1989, 1990, a flood of recent college graduates came in because there was a large hiring um, boom. And that really was the first time that equal number of women and men came in in that particular part of the field. And so there were some jostling. There were some moments that were, were challenging. But I think um, one of the great characteristics of individuals at CIA and then the corporate culture is once someone sees a problem that needs to be addressed, they step up to address it. And in the case, uh, in, in the case related to women, we started doing women's professional development groups and there's a, a DI women's council that still exists today. And we started having conversations around that. And, you know, over the course of two decades, 
there have been some major bumps in the road. There was a class action lawsuit um, against the DO or the NCS National Clandestine Service at the time. But I think I always felt that I had a voice that it really didn't matter in my positions where whether I was a man or a woman and and actually it didn't matter what anyone's race or cultural background or religion was either it's just what are your skills and capabilities and where can I plug you Um, and in part because we're so short-staffed you know particularly after 9-11 it's so irrelevant Mm -hmm. and because everyone was so mission focused you really did just drill down into they have this background, they speak this language, they know how to write, out, go. Um, and so issues like gender or race or ethnicity or any other factor, just it just never, it really didn't come into play for me. I know that there are other people have had different experiences, but I guess I, th- I look back on that one in particular and think how far the organization has come over this time. We've had women deputy directors of intelligence. Um, We've had women directors of other agencies like NGA and the Army G2. Two women and different women have been the Army G2, three-star generals. When do we get a woman CIA director? Uh, (laughs) Is it too political a position now? Or, I mean, obviously a lot of them come from the DO or or from intelligence backgrounds that, you know, John Brennan, I guess, was one of the first analysts who was a director um, and there have been certainly people who have come very close to that height. Um, how far away are we from a woman CIA director? I don't, and you're not anyone in particular, you know, but the, the actual culture itself, uh, you don't need to predict 10 years or whatever, but are we, are we getting to where that would be widely accepted? I, I absolutely, I, I don't think there's an issue of time. The very next director could absolutely be um, the deputy director is a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been two women in that role quite recently. And I don't see it as a, an issue of gender. Uh, it, in this case, President Trump was comfortable with um, Director Pompeo. Um, so it comes down to really more personality and relationships and their ability to run a very large organization. And I would not be surprised at all if the very next director mm-hmm. is a woman. Uh, but I don't see that this, this is a thing that we need more time. Um, the workforce doesn't think about this at all. I mean, it, it, you work for a person, you work for the role, and probably much like the military. They have the title, and so you report to them, and, and that's the way that it is. And I, I just don't see a gender issue as being in the way of the next director becoming, the next director being a woman. You've been working on the Middle East and terrorism since before 9-11. So we're hearing now from people in documentaries, other places, how much CIA was sounding the alarm about al-Qaeda and about Islamic fundamentalism. Yet from others, we hear CIA wasn't doing enough. Uh, As a historian, this is par for the course, and certainly for intelligence historians, but it doesn't stop it from driving me crazy about, all right, People are talking about the same thing but saying completely different things, and they're both high-level people, or they're all people I would trust otherwise. Um, what's your assessment from the inside? Like in the 1990s, during the time period where uh, you know there are people starting to think about Bin Laden and Al Qaeda and, and others, uh, was CIA doing enough, um, or 
were they just hampered by the fact that no one was thinking about this at the time at the highest levels? It was all North Korea and China and everybody else. It's an interesting question. And I think I might make you even more crazy by saying both are true. Which is almost always the case. But right. <laughs> so um, the organization began focusing on Bin Laden in the early 90s. And some of those initial, that initial generation of people who recognized him as dangerous were passionate about it from the beginning. And a lot of them are still on the job. And it is, it is not a job. It is a passion. It is a calling. They are not leaving um, until terrorism is eliminated. That's going to take some time. So never, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> exactly. So, um, so. A lot of resources devoted to counterterrorism, obviously not enough. So there was the coal bombing, there's the embassy bombings in Africa, and obviously 9-11. The, the difficulty, I think, is before 9-11, there absolutely, the system was blinking red. Everyone knew something was coming. I was a, a PDB briefer at the mm -hmm. time, so we're going down to the White House every day and briefing on this. And the problem is, when you don't know exactly what it is, and you can't just say, shut down all the bridges in the country, or shut down all the high-rises, or stop all the airplanes in the air. Um, so there weren't enough specific indicators to point to what we needed to be worried about specifically on that day, on September 11th. Right. And it was not for lack of heroics for the people trying to get the answer across the world. And analysts deployed around the world and in Washington, D.C., trying to figure it out. But they won. Yeah. They won that day. And it only takes once for them to be right. Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? The CIA has got to be right be every single day, every single moment. And FBI yeah. and the Border Patrol. And, you know, so fill in the blank. It's a very, very high bar that we must hold ourselves accountable to because any loss of life, American, allied, any loss of life to terrorism is unacceptable. And so I think it really profoundly affected uh, my organization in ways that it will never be the same again and shouldn't. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking originally about that idea of personal responsibility and you, and you pick up responsibility for carrying that heavy weight of national security and you put it partially on your shoulders and you fail i mean it's so personal and you grieve as a citizen for those of us who knew people who passed away and and you grieve for the failure that that how our failure contributed to the grief and the fear that took over for quite some time after 9-11 mm -hmm. um, and for the world it's created. So it was such a individual, to an, to an individual so personal and even whether they worked on terrorism issues or not, we all felt it. I know the folks at the Bureau felt the same way. And in the military, I mean, it's just this thing of our job is to protect our nation, and we failed that day. Right. You mentioned in that answer that you, you worked as a briefer uh, from the beginning, basically from the beginning of the Bush administration uh, to about a year or so after 9-11. Uh, you were the CIA briefer for both Vice President Dick Cheney and his national security advisor, Scooter Libby. And 
people may remember that name for other reasons. Um, and we've actually talked to several people about how different leaders presented different sets of problems for their briefers or different sets of issues going into it. And, you know, a lot of times the biggest challenge uh, in dealing with somebody who has no previous national security or intelligence experience, which has been a lot of the presidents that we had lately, you know, Obama had none, Trump had none, you know, um, Bush, GW Bush didn't have a ton, uh, you know, going, you really have to go back to George Herbert Walker Bush, who actually had a little bit of something going on there. Dick Cheney, uh, despite what may, people may think about him politically or personally, he wasn't stupid. And he certainly had background as a Secretary of Defense, as a White House Chief of Staff, which meant he was in the know for all the briefing going on back to the Ford administration. So I can imagine he would have been a challenge uh, to brief to it, and a whole different set of challenges, right? You're not doing the baby steps of, Mr. President, this is called humans. <laughs> this is called imminent. Um, I imagine the questions he asked must have been as good as they get, asking all the right questions. Absolutely true. Um, so one of the smartest human beings I've ever met and incredibly savvy, knowledgeable, experienced in many different ways. And I always felt on the days that I briefed him that I had to be on the very best of my A-game and pray. (laughs) And both. Uh, Because he is so knowledgeable about a lot of these issues over decades. And you're coming into him on a day with a new development or perhaps something new that's happened. Maybe it happened 10 years ago. It also happened 10 years ago. So uh, understanding the context with which he would look at it was always a challenge. And then never really knowing where he wanted to go. Um, I think I actually have huge respect for him, Uh, passionate patriot. Whether someone agrees with his politics or not, he very much operated in a way that he believed was in the best interest of the nation and uh, deeply, deeply thoughtful. After 9-11, it was even harder. Um, Oftentimes he was in one of the undisclosed locations, um, which meant a drive. Um, And on a side note, I get car sick. And so, you know, you're being driven to lots of places and there's windy roads and mountains and all sorts of other crazy uh, traffic and I'm trying very hard to highlight my book and read in the back of a armored car which changes all the dynamics and you're just thinking oh please God don't let me throw up on the vice president of the United States (laughs) because I think that would be really bad for my personal reputation and you know when people do embarrassing things those live in epic history forever I did not want to be one of those people yeah, I mean, who for, it's been almost 30 years, but George H.W. Bush throwing up on the Japanese prime minister, and everyone remembers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, No, so absolute. So I, I succeeded, by the way. Yeah. It didn't happen. Um, but, but I think what escapes, may escape some people in looking at him as a figure, a historical figure, or as someone who in shorthand as Darth Vader or or whatever, what is missed in that is how personally he took it. 
I mean, each of them in the administration, but not that the whole mantle of uh, national security responsibility for it. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue yeah. is epicenter for responsibility, and as a vice president, he was there, felt that as well, and they had failed the nation. Even though the intelligence community had been blinking red, right. we didn't give them the specific right that they needed, but they were they knew this was coming, it happened anyway. And so the degree to which they felt this personal conviction that we can never let this happen again. And by the way, after 9-11, the system was still blinking red, saying that there were more attacks coming. Right. And so a lot of the things that happened afterwards were not optimal were not, according to American values, have since been changed, and lots of uh, individuals in national security or uh, in elected positions who supported them at the time did not end up, I think they ended up forgetting that over time. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because from 9-11, you briefed all the way through, I think, October of 2002, so the the first year of, of the war, in Afghanistan and against al-Qaeda. So there were probably no off days <laughs> during this time. I mean, not only are you thinking about potential follow-on attacks, but it's the day-to-day operations of the CIA, your organization, right? The CIA takes the lead. They're the spearhead of the invasion of Afghanistan. Everything from chasing bin Laden to Tora Bora and then losing him into Pakistan, that was your every day for about a year. It was everybody's every day. Yeah. And so people who had worked other in, in Asia or Latin America suddenly got put into terrorism by the hundreds. And our, our agency, in, in terms of big shifts you talked about earlier, one of the big shifts was post 9-11 and this massive, massive counterterrorism mission that grew exponentially. And tons of money, tons of responsibility came with that. And so... We became also a much more deployed uh, agency. Always had people overseas doing all our work, but the nu- sheer numbers and the volume of the reporting that came from overseas meant that people also back at headquarters had huge in-baskets too. So I think I was always conscious, I think all of us really were, are, were that in the end of the day, we were working hard but someone else downrange was working harder and getting fired at, or someone had been injured or someone had lost their life. And so just this deep sense of you get on the hamster wheel and you go. Let me ask you about conventional wisdom, or at least one popular narrative, is that Vice President Cheney pushed CIA into analysis and conclusions that might not have come to organically, like Iraqi WMD, of course, or other Iraq tied to al-Qaeda. And I know you transitioned away from briefing him before the Iraq war, but how much of that is politics and how much of it is legitimate? And, and without, you know, you know, these are obviously personal conversations and, and, and confidential conversations you're having with him. But do you, do you kind of bristle at that perception of the vice president or, or is there some, some legitimacy to that argument? Well, so on Iraq WMD, been much studied and the SSCI report on pre-war intelligence points out where we really needed to do better about Mm -hmm. expressing the number of sources, our confidence in the sources, and then kind of how long they've been reporting, what other contrary information was there that's been long studied. But at the time, we all 
on the Iraq WMD side, people believed absolutely he had them, and he'd used gas against his own people against gas against the Kurds. And so it wasn't that far of a stretch based on both the reporting and his past use uh, against his own people. So it, it wasn't so much that it wasn't so much the vice president Cheney pushed us as he absolutely believed this was true. And most of the people at the agency at the time who who followed that also believed it was true and you know obviously a few years later the truth came out um on the iraq terrorism side which i was much more involved in they came for meetings that i was involved with to, to sit down and ask questions but here's here's how i see it differently our our national leadership was trying to decide whether we should go to war with the country. Huge, huge decision. It means putting so many men and women's lives at risk in the military and lots of other organizations that support the military when they're deployed. It means billions and trillions of dollars that end up getting spent. And it's a very, very serious commitment. Wouldn't you want your elected leadership to come to the CIA and ask questions mm -hmm. and poke and poke and poke at your arguments to make sure. And that's what happened with the Iraq terrorism piece. And uh, they are both Scooter Libby and Vice President Cheney, very, very, very knowledgeable, experienced national security practitioners. They asked really great questions. They pushed and they pushed and do I believe that they had their own viewpoints on this absolutely um, but our team my team was prepared for that and we spoke to here's what we know here's what the data says here's what we believe here's why we believe it here's our confidence in this judgment this is the level of confidence we have in it and this is what's not yet known mm -hmm. and so it did not have any impact his pushing I think only served to underscore how important this moment is. And I think all of the folks who came away from those experiences, you know, collapsed on the floor afterwards because it's exhausting, but also came away with a profound respect for the fact that they didn't make the decision based solely on politics, that they were really, really desperate for an answer even when the answer they got wasn't the one they wanted. So let me take us back to analysis, because I think that we, we've heard a lot about Americans coming into CIA as a result of 9-11. It was just an influx of people coming in. And so once you moved away from briefing the vice president, you moved back to being a, a senior manager uh, for analysts and, and, and managing dozens of terrorism analysts at this time. Um, how was the new crop coming in? I mean, was it uh, was it just a bunch of bright-eyed patriotic kids who wanted to make a difference, you know? Or um, is there? It's been what fifteen years now, so they're probably pretty high if they stick around. Um, is it was it a different group of Americans? And I, and I think that the perception of like the post Pearl Harbor generation, right, the greatest, everyone's dropping everything and signing up. That's kind of what happened after nine eleven. I mean, people drop what they're doing. And they said, I'll do corporate America later on. Let me go serve. Like, was that obvious from the beginning? 
I don't think so. Uh, at least not to me because we were all so buried in just trying to get through the day and, and feed information to policymakers who needed to make urgent decisions that I don't think, at least at, at where I was doing counterterrorism, I had the bandwidth to look up and, and make kind of strategic observations about the people coming in. But what I would say is individual by individual, incredibly smart, incredibly capable. And I think the other thing that maybe is underrated is being confident, but having humility. I mean, want to know that someone can go in and they can brief someone at a senior level and come across as credible because they believe in themselves, they believe in what they're saying. But at the same time, understand that there's a whole lot of experience in the room and that there may be things to learn and such a tough balance sometimes especially as a brand new you know first time employee anywhere well i mean they're coming in with like a 4.0 gpa <coughs> from college they were the big man or woman on campus and all of a sudden they're not the smartest kid in the room anymore because everybody is as smart as they are and everybody else has years of experience by that point i mean i, I again i think about the military you know the great kind of analogy here of and first of a class at West Point, you come in and there's a private that knows more about actually how to fight a war than you do. And that, that at CIA is taken to the next level because literally everyone in the room was an honor student in college and had amazing grades and was the top of their class. And now you're thrust into this and all of a sudden, oh, crap. You know, this is a whole different world. It is funny. It's kind of like, so what? Yeah. It's table stakes. Like, okay, that's the price of admission. Now now the real work starts. It is very funny. Uh, and I think it wasn't very common for anyone to talk about their their academic background, in part because it really wasn't relevant, um, other than to say, no, I know about Latin America or I know about you know, a particular situation so that you could help in a, mm-hmm. in a crisis. But uh, it really was really smart people passionate about making a difference for our country and willing to throw themselves at the work and I just always felt so in awe of seeing my teams at work you had in one case a very senior uh, GS-15 so very experienced senior analyst at this point and his job was hole punching the report for the GS-10, so on the junior side, analyst who'd written the paper that the director needed to take to the White House. And so that senior analyst, his role in mentoring was stapling and hole punching. And that's the kind of camaraderie there is. It's not caught up in ego or role or title. It's what needs to be done, and I will surge to the ball. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Let me ask you about the Kent School. That, that to me, is one of the things that, that maybe the public doesn't know as, as much about. 
and, and I keep bringing up the military because there, there is a lot of our listeners will understand that. And certainly most of America seems to kind of know more about that or think they know more about that than even intelligence. But the military after operations or even training operations do after action reports or AARs. The CIA worked the same way. I mean, are you always kind of lessons learning your way through you know, how to move forward and looking at what you've done in the past? Let me ask the, the secondary question. That was, I think I know the answer. It was more of a rhetorical question. What's more useful, lessons learned from failures or lessons learned from successes? Hmm. <laughs> That's an interesting question. I can tell you which one was more painful. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think being an object lesson when there's a failure in the organization is tough, right? You have to park your ego and and unpack what happened. And um, what I was most proud of, really, when the Iraq WMD uh, situation became apparent was that some of the very analysts who made the mistake invested themselves so heavily in understanding how did we get this wrong? What do I need to learn? How do I get those lessons? How do I learn these these tradecraft tools I didn't have. How do I proselytize throughout the whole of the agency so no one else does this? Right. And so that's hard. I mean, that's putting someone's ego aside and saying for the, the good of the organization and for my own personal development, I need, I need to be part of fixing this. Well, it's beyond self-reflection. I mean, it's now you need to make sure no one else is following. It's great to follow in somebody's footsteps when they're passing along how to do things right. So you've got to make sure no one's following in your footsteps when you go in a really bad direction. Right. No, absolutely. And so some of the people who were most involved in making that initial assessment are did such a remarkable job in helping the organization actually get through it. And we brought in tradecraft experts, and it was a whole-of-agency approach to making sure both on the analytic side and the operational side that we got better at understanding what the data was telling us, and then what the weaknesses were in the data. So that doesn't help anyone as far as Iraq WMD, for example. But what it it does hopefully is prevent that from happening again. Well, in in most of these cases, it is specifically Iraq WMD, but you're going to see very similar environment when talking about North Korean WMD or some other non-WMD issue where it's, you know, look at some of the basic issues of, of having bad sources and unverified vetted sources like Curveball and others where you have to take a step back and say, yeah, that was very specific to biological mobile labs, but it's a bigger question about how do we verify sources? How do we, do we listen to station chiefs? Who do we listen to? Working with other agencies and, and whether we listen to their perceptions of a particular source. These things are not going to go away. You know, for the next 500 years, we're going to have questions about how well can we trust this guy? Right. No, absolutely. And, and there's the whole thing where you, know, you get into confirmation bias. And I think one of the biggest programs that really came out of this was developing a really rigor- rigorous, broad analytic tools and techniques training uh, curriculum. It's still taught to this day. And it's making sure when we're confronting these situations that are so challenging that there's lots of ways for the organization to test its own assumptions before they walk out the door. Mm -hmm. And I think that's enormously important because it is 
human nature, right? This is what happened last week. This is what happened the week before. Oh, that's what's happening this week. No, actually this time it was the Tunisian fruit seller who put himself on fire and all of a sudden the Middle East change, starts mm, changing, right? Right. So it, I think it's a, a way for the organization to become much more sophisticated in its assessments and check itself when that natural human nature path of, uh, I've seen this before, it takes over. So I'm actually really proud of what the agency has done on this. There's always more work to be done. You have to be right every single time, right? right? And batting a thousand isn't something that happens in baseball very often, but you know, we're, we're trying to do that on the agency side. Well, from, from the Kent school, you, you, kind of bounced to the other side of the, the house and where became the deputy division chief of the National Clandestine Service, which is, if you don't know some of the culture of CIA, that's not the most common thing for a, for a career analyst to kind of hop to the other side. And literally, it's the other side of the building. And it used to be back in the day where it was like the Jets and the Sharks, you know, <laughs> uh, on opposite ends of even the cafeteria. Was there any pushback from the operations side from a career analyst coming in and kind of being at that level? No, in fact, I was the one saying no. Um, it was the head of the National Clandestine Service who kept calling me and asking me to take the job. And then um, the component chief, the division chief, kept calling and saying, please come take the job. And I said, why, why would I be qualified to do this? I don't have this background. And uh, it finally came to... Um, the component chief came over to my office, which is in a location about 30 miles away from headquarters, and said, I'm sitting in your office until you accept the job. <laughs> and so three hours later, I finally said, if you really believe I can do this, I will do this. Um, and it was an incredibly fun, important, uh, eye-opening experience. And I think what they knew that I didn't know was... I wasn't the one who needed to make the final operational call on people on on specific things. What they were looking for was someone who had a background in a lot of different parts of the agency to have bring in a perspective, almost a, an outside perspective, so that when we were moving forward on some very very difficult things, there was someone with alien thinking, for right. lack of a better term, um, in the room. It's almost like a your own little red team kind of throwing thinking mm -hmm. from a different perspective. Um, this is during or, or right after the, the reorganization of the universe when it comes to American intelligence. Um, and, and you created and stood up a Middle Eastern Geographic Operations Division. What the hell is that? Uh, and, and what's new about this? Like, how does this, how does this conform to this new thinking about the way American intelligence was evolving in the mid-2000s? Well, I, I think... It reflected at the time the growing importance of certain Middle Eastern countries and what, uh, what we needed to do against them in terms of focused efforts. And so that was the genesis of, of that reorganization. It was really making sure that that uh, country itself got the attention that, that it needed. Was this part of a broader concept of like fusion? You know, I don't know, the fusion centers are their own specific thing, but kind of bringing together ops people and analysts and from people from different parts of the agency and from the community that kind of share their knowledge and, and expertise with one another? There was definitely some of that in partnerships, but it wasn't, I mean, there have been subsequent modernization. 
that um, has been underway for the last few years. It wasn't that. But I, I think it's really, and probably through the whole history of the agency, there are units that get stood up and they're there for four, five, ten years, and then they get taken down again, and then new units get mm -hmm. stood up. I mean, there's some general um, regional focus, areas of focus that maybe get renamed, but they're, they're focusing on the same region. But you know, think about the Balkans. Right. The Balkans task force existed for longer than a decade. Um, and it, but prior to the outbreak of you know, the former Yugoslavia falling apart and the outbreak of war there, um, it wasn't a huge area of focus for the United States. So there are quite often um, task forces that get stood up when there are crisis situations. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's, they're not permanent. Right. At least in the Balkans task force sure felt like it was permanent. But um, for the most part, they can last six months, a year, maybe even a couple years. And they go, people go back into the work they used to do when the crisis is over. Mm -hmm. You later led a unit that prepared the agency's top leadership for relationships and engagements with the White House and Congress and, and foreign governments. And that's interesting. Uh, that's a challenge. We talk all the time here about how dissemination of intelligence can be the weak link. Uh, you can have the greatest collectors in the world and the smartest analysts in the world, but if you can't talk to policymakers and make them understand what it means. Um, so when you're, when you're in this job of trying to train people who are going to go on the Hill or going to the White House. How much of that job was trying to predict the needs of people in the White House, people at Congress? And, and like, how much of it was like what, you, you know, kind of passing along the information, you know, from your experience with the vice president, but also he's really unique. You're not going to have, a, you don't have a lot of Dick Cheney's running around in Congress. <laughs> you have almost none. And at this time, you have this is the Obama administration, and he had been on the job for a little while, which I'll talk about in a second. But you don't have a White House full of Dick Cheney's. Even even Joe Biden didn't have the experience that he did. So, how are you trying to to teach others how to get the the points across that you want to make as an agency? It's a really important question, and I think this actually applies anywhere, not just at the agency, but anywhere and any time in life is understanding where your audience is and what what is called the arc of the story so do they have background in this have they served in the military and so they actually lived in this country for example um is there a crisis that happened last year and so understanding where the audience is in the story and then understanding what their role is and advancing it is vital to actually writing what it is that is needed to be presented to them. So uh, it's it would be very easy to write a five-page paper on, I don't know, aviation in a major country. Well, who cares? Unless it says there are these advances or they'll have the capability to do X that they didn't used to have before. Or, or, or maybe that's not important at all um, because the person that you're your briefing is actually a Navy guy mm -hmm. and that's what he cares about. And so I think it comes down to really tailoring your product so that you can communicate to the audience what they need to, 
what they need to hear at the time they need to hear it. And that's actually, both things are kind of hard. Um, but if, if we're thinking about that, for senior leaders, the agency is 100% devoted to supporting policymakers and the deployed military in executing decisions to support United States national security. If we aren't um, providing relevant information, uh, on a, a, the executive branch, we get actually pretty direct feedback about that. Yeah. Um, when you fail, you know pretty quickly, um, and it's a missed opportunity. Uh, and more importantly, someone has to go make a decision without the benefit of the right background and information. And so you try never to do that at all. And when you do it, you have to fix it as quickly as possible. So um, a long answer to your question, but I think this piece of the arc of the story is vital uh, to making sure that we're weighing in at the right time, at the, at the right level, with the right focus with people. I'm always interested in learning curves. So I talked about the idea no one's prepared to be president. This is during Obama's second administration. So he'd had some time in the job. He'd, this is after the bin Laden raid and after you know all the other droning of Anwar Alaki and everybody else. Did you or your colleagues see a noticeable difference in how his administration dealt with intelligence from where he was when he first came in as a novice? I mean, was there was it easier to brief? Was it easier to have that conversation to get that feedback? Were they asking better questions? Not just the president himself, but the people you were talking to, the administration. Had that learning curve been noticeable over the four years that he had spent in office? Well, so I think actually that's true with every administration. You know, even administrations that have players with significant national security experience because they left the story five years, 10 yeah. years, 15 years ago. And so they have a really strong viewpoint about what it was, but things change over time. So I think it's very, it has been very common as we're briefing up new administrations and helping them understand where, what's going on in the world for them to be, um, for there to be much more dialogue across not only the senior levels, but um, their, the National Security Council, the direct, the senior directors and the, and the directors, and then their staff. So we at the agency have invested a lot of a lot of time providing the information that we hope will be useful background for those folks as they're working to make decisions and in supporting the decision making through deputies committee meetings and principals committee meetings and then national security council meetings mm -hmm. um, so o obama sec uh, secretary obama listen to me um, president obama his administration was no different in that regard. Um, the kinds of things they knew about, a really great understanding of domestic issues, obviously, and uh, had been briefed for a number of months as a candidate. Mm -hmm. So had familiarity with a lot of issues, especially you know, having served as a senator, but really stepped that up in the beginning of his administration, and I'd say over the first six months of it, but not any more than other administrations prior to him. Well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting comment. And, uh, you know, I, I asked you all these questions about Dick Cheney thinking, you know, he's way ahead of the curve, but Cheney had been Secretary of Defense under George H.W. Bush. So there's a good eight, nine years of separation between the world in 1991 and the world in 2001. 
Does that make it harder? I mean, almost deprogramming people's preconceived notions because they think they know what's going on in the world versus somebody. I can imagine Barack Obama coming in and being like, I know nothing about nothing. Teach me. I mean, versus uh, Dick Cheney, who thought he understood the world, at least how it was in 1991. I I don't, not having been a president or a vice president before. um, I think what I felt from both of those and and from what I have either heard directly from other uh, senior administration officials and then in conversations with colleagues is there a great deal of humility about what they don't know and particularly because now they're responsible for guiding the United States on the right path. And so um, I think it, it can be very delicate when you're telling someone who's the leader of the free world or the national security advisor or the secretary of state, their secretary of defense, that they're maybe not right um, and that that's an art form. <laughs> um, there's one particular case with a senior official who I will not name in any way, shape, or form um, was insisting someone was the leader of a country and that person was dead. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out how to tactfully say that. Like slide the obituary very slowly across the table. <laughs> I, I think I, I went for the ever courageous. He, he absolutely was a, a, the leader of this country and served ably until his unfortunate passing several years ago <laughs> and then moved very quickly onto a new subject. So to be a fly on the wall in some of those conversations. So well, it, it is a personal relationship, yeah. right? And so my job, a briefer's job is to make sure you understand what the policymaker is responsible for and cares about and to put the information in front of him or her that supports their efforts. Um, Do you get more courageous as you get, as you establish a better relationship or a more familiar relationship with the person you're briefing? Meaning, if that situation with the person, in very high person who thought somebody was still alive, had happened six months into the time you're briefing that person, would that would have been easier for you to be like, yeah, they're dead? No, (laughs) no, Um, because there's always, I mean, I used to go into these every single day with a sense of awe. How did a girl from a very small farming community in California get to be walking into the White House to brief the vice president of the United States of America? And why in the world is he listening to her? And so I just always had such a sense of... um, really awe about the experience that, um, you know, my job was to get over that, right, and to give the hard message when I, need, when I needed to. Um, but at the same time, there's not the familiarity. Yeah. It's still the vice president of the United it States. It absolutely regardless. is. Yeah. And, you know, they live in two-minute, one-minute increments. Mm-hmm. And the schedules, if you see them for a day, is 7.30 to 7.31, you know, walk across yeah. to the West Wing. 7.31 to 7.32, shake four hands. Seven thirty, and so, and mm-hmm. that, and that's every day yeah. of their entire term, and so if they are devoting thirty minutes, which was 
generally what it was prior to 9-11 and multiple hours after it of that time that's valued in minute increments I think we all just all of us have felt this incredible responsibility to be provide meaningful information to be relevant to be unbiased I mean and to sometimes object when there was something that wasn't correct about what had been said Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a difference between disagreeing with someone's political view and having a a factual mistake Mm -hmm. or it may be that the agency's analytic viewpoint was this and the policymaker had the other one had had another viewpoint in which case the responsibility is to make sure that they understood the full uh, scope of the agency's view and if there was something about their own viewpoint that maybe there was uh, erroneous data involved in it or something like that you want to help them but in the end of the day, they are politicians elected by our citizens because of their viewpoints, and then they are they lead from that. And so there's a there's a limit to how far an intelligence officer should go in in supporting a, a politician. Yeah, I mean, even if they have their own views, <coughs> they should at least we'll cut that out, huh? Even if they have their own views, they should at least understand what is the position of the of CIA. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and then they can decide to disregard that on their own, but at that point, that's out of your hands. Right. And that's the policy-making side, which is not what intelligence agencies are supposed to be doing. You, you wrapped up your career at the Open Source Center, and people might actually may be surprised that Open Source Center is not just a throwaway title, that we're actually talking about a physical manifestation of a building and that CIA actually puts a major focus on open source intelligence. It's not just spies running around other countries stealing information, but so much today is, uh, is, is collected through open source. Let me ask you about that transition. Because open source has been around forever, but in the world of big data and social media and so much readily available news from around the world today and technology, Open source has really taken on a, a whole life of its own. It really has. It, you're right. It, it the open source enterprise now. Um, it has been around since Pearl Harbor, and uh, it used to be that experts with uh, phenomenal language skills read newspapers and watched TV broadcasts and reported on what was being said when you could actually watch all the TV right. and, and read all the newspapers, and they ha- came out once a day. And there was one news report. So the world has changed technolo- technologically, but open source has changed too. It's, it's the definition of ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think open source information is vital to shaping our understanding of what's going on in other countries now. Because it gets at a level of um, the population that helps analysts understand what are the dynamics that are shaping, you know, country X. You know, is there a famine? Are there is there a shortage of food? Um, has there been tremendous rainfall? I mean, all of these factors that you can get a sense of it. You just really couldn't do that, and you certainly don't need a classic human mm-hmm. or signals intelligence or imagery can be useful too, but you, you don't need that. And so 
there's a tremendous use for open source in a lot of different ways. Understanding what's happening in social media is also really interesting because you want to understand what dynamics are shaping the population and then they're therefore affecting the, the country's leadership. I mean, there's some things that if you look them on the face, it's hard to understand why a, a leader of a country is, is taking a step and you look and understand, wow, there's a massive groundswell coming from the population that, you know, this gas tax is just, that's it, we're done with this. And so it, I think it helps give us a window of insight into what's happening around the world that are the, the, the president and then the senior national security officials, what their counterparts are facing. So perhaps helps them have a, a greater dialogue with them as they're looking forward to moving both national security objectives forward. And there are times when leaders themselves use social media, which is a groundswell of information for intelligence agencies around the world. Um, you were there until July of 2015, if I read your information correctly. We're talking a lot now about how the, the Russian government has used social media to such a, maybe the best ever. Um, so this is not all that long ago. Did you, did, were you, start, did you start seeing uh, Russia and others using social media uh, to a much more uh, successful extent at that time, or were you just looking at collection? So I think that was too far ahead of the election. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have not read any of the intelligence and I haven't read any of the classified information on any of this stuff. So I don't have any insight into it, um, based on, um, knowledge of, you know, what, what is actually happening inside the building. But I think it's been really obvious to those of us who have background as intelligence analysts, that this has been underway for some time. And the scope of it, the breadth of it, the audacity of it is astonishing. And it's not, it's not a partisan issue to my, to my way of looking. Mm -hmm. It's an American issue. And if we're going to disagree with each other, it should be because we actually disagree with each other, not because, you know, Russian trolls are out there sending out protesters and then other trolls are sending out counter protests, right. which actually happened in Texas. Both groups were there because Russian trolls had convinced them there was this groundswell. And so we don't want to be manipulated by anybody. Right. I mean, as Americans, it's just an anathema to all of us, right? And in Texas, of all places, um, in particular. So we have to understand how it happened. We have to understand how to stop it. And we have to be on guard for it for the future. And it's not just us. I mean, we've seen this affect the Brexit decision in, in the UK. Um, Angela Merkel, with her election, there's all sorts of indications that they were involved there as well. And I, this just may be the new way that the Russians operate. It may be other countries doing it as well. I, I have not studied that. But I think it has become a powerful tool for communicating with millions of people all at once. And when that tool is in the hands of people who would, people or countries who would do us harm, we really, really need to make sure we're being very diligent about not falling for someone's invented story. Is there a method to the, I'm not going to use the word, man. is there a method to the methodology of President Trump using social media so, so frequently, essentially the idea of getting beyond 
media getting beyond the, the anyone filtering him, whether it's even in his own White House and reaching out directly to the population. I mean, I, I can see how in a world full of potential trolls and people that you might not agree with in the media and partisanship and everything else, this is a, a way to directly reach out to your base and your, your people and say, this is me talking to you directly. And using social media just is, is so, so today, right? This would be like a fireside chat. He's doing a fireside chat every morning when he wakes up after he watches Fox and Friends. But, you know, this, this seems to be the modern equivalent of that in many respects. It really does. It gives him direct communication with his constituency or his followers on as frequent a basis as he wants to tweet. Um, it, it's a very different approach. Um, probably won't comment too much more yeah. than that. <laughs> um, but, but you cannot argue with its effectiveness right. in reaching his constituency. Let me ask you one final wrap-up question. And I think that this, this is as broad as one of the, the first questions I asked you, so feel free to answer it however you want to. What do you see as the biggest institutional challenge for CIA going forward? Like what, you know, every so often something pops up that is kind of a major kind of come to Jesus moment for CIA, whether it's in 75 in Church and Pike or it's <coughs> Daniel Patrick Moynihan and saying we don't need a CIA to WMD and torture and, you know, the kind of the president of the United States saying they're Nazis or whatever. Those are challenges. But, you know. As the CIA moves forward, what, what do you see as the next big hurdle that they're going to have to get over in order to be an effective agency for the next 50 years? That is an incredible question. Thanks, Vince. Well, um, take your time. <laughs> so there are, there are a few that come to mind. Um, one of them is, historically, we have thought there, there have been transnational issues, terrorism, proliferation, narcotics, counter-narcotics. Um, but in general, we have studied countries, regions, um, territorial, there's been a territorial link to what it is we're looking at. We're, you can go to London. Mm -hmm. You can't go to cyberspace, right? Um, and I think Cyber is, this isn't received wisdom or anything, it's an enormous challenge because it's everywhere. Um, it changes so frequently, the technology changes, and it's something that um, is coming after us for our, the intellect, our intellectual property as domestically for our secrets, not only CIA, but any any um, corporation in America has to have an active cyber program that's not only a check the box, we did this so the board is happy, but it actually has to work and it has to evolve and has to move and it's a lot of money, or it can be. And it's going to take a, an enormous commitment. Warrior, cyber warriors are going to be vital to the future and we're seeing the organizations in the military and intelligence community absolutely know this, but the challenge will continue to get harder because people who are qualified for those positions also have tremendous opportunity in the, in the private sector. Mm -hmm. 
So I think the, the cybersecurity piece of it is huge, and it is, it is a challenge that comes at the same time where you have open source and social media inter interconnectivity be so vital to not only understanding the world, but technological development. And the generation of people coming into not only the agency, but in the work, workforce around the world, private sector, public sector, is very accustomed to living in the world of social media and living in an internet connected world that when that isn't as available, that becomes difficult too. Um, the other big piece I think is because there are, there are a lot of people who are able to retire now and are because they've served 20, 30, some cases 40 years and they're moving on to other challenges. And so their generation of leaders who would normally be in place, there are a whole lot of people in their kind of 50 to 56 ages who are actually leaving. Hmm. Um, they've served, they've served overseas multiple times in war zones multiple times and their families are just tired. Right. And you know, it's time to go do something different. And so I think the the generation, current, the current leadership team, are remarkable people, and there are remarkable people coming up the chain, but it's making sure they have the kinds of cycles of learning necessary to replace those senior leaders and serve effectively in, in governing the CIA. Um, all of that said, one of the attributes of the agency is it doesn't matter how hard it is, it doesn't matter how awkward it is, it doesn't matter and how bad a position you start, they will always get the mission done. And so even with these challenges, I think they will get there. It's just, boy, it's going to be a little bit of a rough road. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. And uh, if you ever find your way out there in listenership world uh, to our museum, either uh, in the next year or uh, moving over to the new museum, I think you'll have plenty of opportunities to you see Kristen working with us uh, at the museum or otherwise. So Kristen, again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here Vince, at Vince, thank you. It's a real pleasure. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network, and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.